morning all. We are starting in Daniel 7. You're clever enough that you'll work out why when we get to the end. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the ten horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Revelation chapter 1. 
the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming on the cl- with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Tyathira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
Let me tell you about Stefan and Lydia. Stefan and Lydia and their family live in the city. Uh, they run the family business. Uh, it's a second generation family business, importing and exporting. Uh, and you know, they're, they're not going to retire at 35, having made their millions, but they're going okay. The, the business is profitable enough. Uh, Stefan and Lydia are also Christians. They're followers of Jesus. They, they came to faith in their late teens, and now they too are trying to raise their family to love Jesus. But over the last couple of years, uh, Stefan and Lydia's levels of anxiety have just been rising and rising steadily. Uh, there is just this increasing sense of fear. Six months ago, one of their regular customers uh, said to them, listen, we're cancelling the order. They did that because they found out that Stefan and Lydia are Christians. Their old friends, people they'd grown up with in the neighbourhood, they've got kids the same sort of age, but they don't want their kids hanging out with Stefan and Lydia's kids anymore. And Stefan and Lydia have noticed that people are drifting away a little bit from church. And more broadly, the, the society that they're part of is starting to squeeze people. They're, they're feeling like they, they can't sign up for the sort of values that the society wants them to have. The society is calling on them to you know, give their allegiance, give their devotion to things that they just think, oh, we can't be part of that. And so Stefan and Lydia are just feeling like, oh, what are we to do? Their, their levels of anxiety just keep going up and up. So like, what's going to happen to the business? What's going to happen to the kids when it feels like if, if we are following Jesus, the kids are going to get sidelined, where does that leave them? Are they going to want to keep following Jesus? What are you feeling anxious about at the moment? What are you feeling fearful about? When, when you lie awake at night, staring up at the ceiling, what is it that gets your heart going a little bit faster? See, Stefan and Lydia aren't from 21st century Adelaide. They're from the first century Mediterranean world. And they are feeling the pinch, they are feeling the squeeze as believers under the Roman Empire are pressured more and more to give their allegiance to the society around them. And although they're from the first century and we're from the 21st century, I think the parallels are striking. And it's into that context that the book of Revelation is written. The book of Revelation is written to believers who are feeling squeezed. And history will show that over the next couple of hundred years, the pressure will ratchet up and up and up. So if Revelation is written to believers like that, those whose anxiety levels go up and up, then I, I think Revelation's got something to be helpful for us. 
you've got the passage printed there, please have it open, and there's an outline, you can follow along uh, where we're headed. Let me pray and ask that God would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful that you're a speaking God. So please, now we pray, please come by your spirit, take your word and make it alive to us that we would know your voice speaking into our lives. Please be with us now, we pray. Amen. So, Revelation is written to Christians who are feeling squeezed, who are under pressure to conform to the society around them. So, given that it's written into that context, how are we meant to read it? This is the question that Cam asked before. As we approach this book, approach this series, how are we meant to make sense of this? Well, the lovely thing is that Revelation actually gives us some clues itself to approach the book, how we're meant to read it. And it comes there in the prologue. We're given four clues to make sense of the book. Let me read those first three verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave, gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Here's four clues for reading Revelation. First clue, right at the start. This is a revelation. It's designed to reveal. It's designed to reveal, not conceal. This is going to pull the curtain back for us so that we can see things from God's perspective. It's a revelation. Second thing is, did you notice how this is going to happen? John is going to testify to everything that he saw. Everything that he saw. This is going to be visual. It's going to be done in pictures. It's not going to be an engineering manual. It's not going to be a biology textbook. It's not even going to be like one of Paul's letters with its tight logic. This is going to be visual. In that way, it's going to be much more like a children's storybook with big, bright colours and bold strokes because a picture is worth a thousand words. So this is designed to reveal through pictures and what's the content? Well, it says it's about Jesus Christ. This, this is all about Jesus. That sounds good. And what's the result? Well, verse 3 says twice it's to be a blessing. It's to be a blessing to those who read it and take it to heart. So, Revelation is designed to reveal through pictures about Jesus so that it's a blessing to people. That's the book's own attitude towards itself. And so if that's Revelation's attitude, I think that's a pretty good place for us to start as well. It's designed to reveal through pictures about Jesus so that it might bless us. So I hope that 
you can have a level of confidence as we approach this book, given that that's how Revelation itself wants you to approach it. Okay, if that's how we're going to approach the book, then what is it telling us, and what is it telling those first century believers that helps them when they are feeling squeezed, when their levels of anxiety are rising? Well, what it does, first of all, is help them look back and look forward so that they can get their bearings. They look back and look forward so that they might know their identity, purpose, and direction. Have a look there. Pick up um, halfway through verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So we look back to Jesus' death and resurrection, and we look forward to his coming. In other words, we've got the gospel in a nutshell. It's the gospel that's going to give them their identity, purpose, and direction. They can look back and know that Jesus has freed them from their sins. He's been raised to life and he's coming again. We know where we're headed. We know what our identity is. It says there uh, that in verse 6 that we're to be a kingdom. This language uh, is picked up from Exodus chapter 19. Remember when God brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, brought them to Sinai. He says to them, you, you for me are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God's people, that's their identity. Their purpose is there to be priests. A priest represents God to the people and people to God. And so Old Testament Israel was to represent God to the nations around them. So too, now we as believers represent God to the people. And what's their direction? Well, they know Jesus is coming back. That's who they look forward to. So the gospel grounds people. It gives foundation. It gives moorings by giving people their identity, purpose, and direction. See, our identity, it, you don't believe what social media tells you that your identity is solely about your gender. You know, sure, gender is part of our identity, but foundationally, our identity is as the people of God. That you are one of God's chosen, beloved children. That's your identity. Your purpose is as a priest, as it were, a representative. That in your extended families, in your workplace, in the community groups that you're a part of here in the hills, you are God's representative. And we know where we're headed, that Jesus is coming back. The gospel grounds us in our identity, purpose, and direction. 
We look back and we look forward. Now, if that's the case, what do we do in the meantime? Between looking back and looking forward, knowing that Jesus is coming, what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, we look up. The most prestigious and famous art award in Australia is the Archibald Prize. It's a prize given for portrait. And this year, uh, there was between five and 600 entries, and that was whittled down to a short list of 50. Let me show you uh, a couple of pictures here. On your left uh, is the winner of this year's Archibald Prize. $100,000 prize uh, awarded by the trustees of the New South Wales Art Gallery. On your right is what won the People's Prize. Uh, 25,000 people, general public voted, and this was the most popular choice. Now, you think, these are portraits. Now, they're not photos. A photo gives an exact representation. But a portrait, a portrait is designed to draw your attention to something. It's, it's done in such a way that the artist wants to highlight certain things. It wants us to see certain things. And what we have here in Revelation 1 is a portrait, a portrait of who Jesus is. And it's designed to draw our attention to particular features. Pick it up, won't you, uh, partway through verse 13. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his feet were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is a portrait of Jesus, not a photo, but it's a portrait designed to draw our attention to particular features. And so what, what do we see? We see how he's dressed. He's dressed like an Old Testament priest with a long flowing robe and golden sash. A priest who speaks to God on behalf of the people. He looks like the judge. In our first Bible reading today from Daniel 7, did you notice it was the description of the heavenly courtroom and the thrones are set in place and the ancient of days, God himself, sits to rule over the court. And how is God described? As one whose hair is white like wool. The judge has hair white like wool and that description is now applied to Jesus. Here is the judge who's sitting on the, the judgment seat. And out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword, which 
in Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, that picture of a sharp double-edged sword is an image of judgment, who speaks his words will judge the nations by his standards, by the breath of his mouth, by his words. He's dressed like a priest. He looks like the judge. And he sounds like the sovereign king. Pick it up there at the end of verse 17. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, 6, this is what we read. This is what the sovereign Lord, uh, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And those very words that describe God are now here applied to Jesus. I am the living one. I am the first. I am the last. He speaks as the sovereign king. So this portrait of Jesus has him dressed like the priest. He looks like the judge. He sounds like the sovereign king. This is the picture of Jesus who is awesome and powerful and magnificent. The one who rules everything. Now why does that help? Why does that help people who are feeling squeezed? Who, where the society is demanding their allegiance? Because when they look up, they see this Jesus, the one who speaks like, uh, the one who's dressed like the priest. So that when the society around them makes accusations that they are evil and bigoted and are not, do not fit, that when society makes those accusations, the priest speaks to God on their behalf that when the society around them sits in judgment on them and sidelines them and says, you don't belong, they look up and see this Jesus who will judge the nations by the breath of his mouth. That when the society around them calls for their allegiance and devotion, they look up and they see Jesus as the sovereign king, the one to whom everyone will one day have to bow the knee. The one to whom every emperor and ruler and cultural influencer will answer to. This is the powerful, awesome, sovereign Jesus. And where is he now? He's with his church. In verse 12, it talks about Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. Here's what a lampstand looks like. This is a lampstand was in the Old Testament temple. Uh, the Old Testament temple was where God dwelt. And so the lampstand 
is a symbol of where God dwells. And so this awesome, powerful, sovereign Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. In verse 20, we're told that is the church. This awesome, powerful, sovereign Jesus has his church. He knows his church. And we'll see more of that next week. My brothers and sisters of Allgate, here is a portrait of Jesus. We look back and we look forward to get our bearings, to know our identity, purpose and direction. And as we wait, we look up. So let me ask you, who are you looking to? Who are you looking to? See, this is not just the the Jesus of Christmas, the, the baby. He's not even the saviour of Easter. This is Jesus now. This is the awesome, powerful, sovereign Jesus who has his church, who has Trinity Church Allgate. Let me tell you about another Trinity Church. Trinity Church, Cambridge, in England. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, their pastor was a man named Charles Simeon. Here's a picture of Charles. He was their pastor for 54 years. Imagine having a pastor for 54 years. It wasn't easy though. Uh, The church and Simeon himself uh, faced lots of opposition both in, in the church and from outside. And as the biographers have dug into Simeon's life, they've tried to work out what was it that sustained somebody for so long in the face of opposition. One of the things they've discovered is this. They they tell this story, that one day, uh, one of Simeon's friends, Mr. Marsden, came to Simeon's room, knocked on his door, went inside and found Simeon, and I quote, so absorbed in the contemplation of the Son of God and so overpowered with the display of his mercy to his soul that he was incapable of saying a single word until a long time later, Simeon simply said, glory, glory. The thing that sustained Simeon through all the opposition that he faced was that he kept contemplating, he kept looking to the Son of God, the risen Lord Jesus, the one who is powerful and glorious and awesome. The portrait that we have here in Revelation 1. So my brothers and sisters, can I encourage you, as you Reset, you know, you, you can see all the, the ministry stuff, you know, so encouraging, trying to reset for next year. As you reset, 
Keep looking up to the risen, powerful, awesome Jesus who is magnificent. And as you look up, Jesus reaches down. Do you notice what he did? He reached down and he touches John and he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. My brothers and sisters, do not be afraid, but look up to the risen, powerful, awesome Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much that what John saw has been recorded for us and for our benefit. That we too can look to your son, the one who says to us, do not be afraid. Please strengthen us for your glory. Amen.